morning we're in Mark 12, 1 through 12. So when he began to speak to them in parables, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our worship this morning today. I pray you would uh, give us wisdom and that you would search our hearts and minds and find them eager uh, to follow your word and to bow to it. I pray that you would be with Dan as his work throughout the week would come to fruition and that your spirit would be with him and that our worship today and the word would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scripture reading there from Mark chapter 12, our sermon text will actually begin chapter 11, verse 27, as we work our way through. As we've gone through the gospel of Mark, there's been many things about Jesus that have astounded or captured the attention of the audience, whether that audience is his own family, perhaps his disciples, sometimes the crowds that are around. Or sometimes those adversaries, whether it's religious leaders or even the workers of darkness, the demons themselves, he has captured their attention. He has astounded them. But as you scan Mark and you look at the one thing that kind of rises to the top that really has stopped people in their tracks, it has really amazed the audience. In Greek, what is the word exousia? Not that you need to know that, but you see it pop up again and again. That is his authority. It is his authority that has been on display in Mark. It comes up repeatedly. When he speaks, he's not just speaking as one who has authority, but one who he himself is the authority. And the people are amazed by it. They are terrified by it. They're often offended by it. Jesus speaks and he acts decisively. He acts with great power and with great passion and with a focused purpose. And through the mark, through this gospel, his, his sovereign freedom, his magisterial authority has left really the greatest impression on the audience. And hopefully it has left that impression on us as its reader. Really it's the authority of Jesus that emerges early in chapter 1 and serves as the foundation for his message and for his mission. Nowhere has that authority been more on display than when he arrives in Jerusalem at the temple. Again, we've talked about the different sections of Mark. In chapter 11, he he makes his way to Jerusalem. He arrives in chapter 11 and he goes straight to the temple. 
the glory of God entering the temple in the person of Jesus Christ. And his authority immediately goes on display as he challenges the, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, those who are in charge at the temple. He calls them a den of thieves as, as he overturns the tables of the money changers and those who are, are selling sacrifices and making a profit, as it were, selling access to God. And he drives them out of the temple making that declaration. God has declared the temple is to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of thieves. And there's been no more direct confrontation to the religious authorities, the religious leaders with Jesus' own authority as it's unveiled. It's not the first time, but it's the, the, when it shows itself the greatest. We've seen early on as Jesus forgives sins. As Jesus casts out demons, as Jesus stills the storm, as Jesus multiplies food, as he teaches with with not looking to the rabbis, but speaks as, as the authority himself, all of it points to the truth of Jesus, that in his wisdom, in his courage, and by his divine identity, he has authority. It answers the question for us that Mark has been asking again and again. Who is Jesus? He is the divine Son of God. After Jesus run in with the Sanhedrin at the temple, from that point until the end of chapter 12, there's going to be seven different confrontations as Jesus runs in to these religious leaders. Some Jesus starts, some the religious leaders start but there will be a battle of authority and what we are looking at today is yes you guessed it the authority of Jesus Christ is challenged our points our application will be simple how do we understand the authority of Jesus Christ in our life come to chapter 11 in verse 27 if you would look at your text there and you want to follow along Jesus, again, is in the temple. We remember that. He's in, as he declares his authority, he comes to the place of utmost authority. That is to Jerusalem and then to the heart of the authority. That would be the the temple. There is no more authoritative place. And he addresses no more authoritative group in the life of Israel than the Sanhedrin. It's in that setting, verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Obviously, it's no mere man that is acting and talking as Jesus does. No mere man has that authority and so they want to know, what gives you the right? Who gave you the right, the authority to come in here, flip tables? Tell us what God wants the temple to be and call us a den of thieves. Jesus does what many rabbis tended to do is answering a question with a question. Verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from man? Answer me. So he asked this question as they try to ensnare and entrap him, and he asks them a question that he knows they won't answer. You can see, picture them gathering together. 
as they try to think what's the best way to answer. If Jesus' authority is marked by wisdom and courage, then that's exactly what is lacking in the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. They're not concerned with getting the answer right. What they're concerned with is what will the people think? Will they lose influence? Will they lose power? How is this going to stack up for them? They know that people consider John the Baptist a, uh, a prophet. And so if they say, well, the baptism is just from John, then it's going to belittle John, so they don't want to say that. But if they say that Jesus' baptism was from God, they don't want to say that because that would validate the authority of Jesus Christ. And so it's not that they can't answer, but they refuse to. Verse 31, they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they all thought that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Trying to undermine, trying to get out of the authority of Jesus Christ. Two observations before we come into the parable in chapter 12. First, an observation about his baptism. Jesus asks a question specifically about his baptism because it is at his baptism where the authority of Jesus Christ is validated. You remember Mark, he doesn't mess around in his gospel. You're only a few verses in and he's already at the baptism of Jesus Christ. So he's moving quickly. And you remember as Jesus was baptized, a voice comes from the heavens ripping through the skies. And the announcement is made, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. An announcement, a validation, both to Jesus Christ as he begins his ministry, to all around, this is my beloved son. This one is the divine son of God. And in that moment, it's really inaugurating his public ministry. It's empowering him in his public ministry that he would go and proclaim and he would be on mission to the cross with full authority as Jesus proclaims, this is my beloved son. And we see it because immediately he's empowered to enter the wilderness temptation. And then he begins his ministry after that of proclamation, proclaiming that they would believe the gospel of the kingdom. So when Jesus refers back to the baptism of the disciples, they should know. If, if you want to know by whose authority I'm acting, look at my baptism. Who in my baptism blessed me and declared me to be the beloved son, the divine one, who set me on mission to the cross? And we'll see that that comes back up at the end of our story. So the, the baptism points to his divine authority but even more, we see this, that Jesus has not come so that you can question his authority, but for you to answer to his authority. He's not come so that we might question his authority, that we might put him to the test, but he is the authority. He is the son of God, and he has come that we might answer to his authority. The religious leaders get it all wrong. They think that Jesus owes them a sign. They think that Jesus owes them an explanation. They think that he has come and they, he should serve their cause. Increase their influence and their power and, and be a Messiah the way that they want him to be a Messiah. But he is God incarnate. 
He is ruler of the universe. He doesn't come to answer to us. He comes that we might answer to him. And yet we see the religious leaders doing everything they can to get out of answering to his authority. They should have known by now. They've seen him act. They've heard him teach. They know the Old Testament. But they do everything they can to escape his authority, to claim authority, to claim autonomy on their own, that they can be righteous on their own by their traditions, that they don't need Jesus Christ. <clears throat> this fall, we were raking, blowing out the leaves from our yard. And our neighborhood across the street from us, there's this hill with trees and uh, it's just a big wooded area. So everyone in the neighborhood dumps their grass and blow their, their leaves to this area. So when we rake and blow, <clears throat> we were just getting every, all the leaves out of our yard, blowing them through the gate. And of course the kids are very interested in this as I'm working on a Saturday. So we get it all out of the gate. There's a big pile. So we leave it there for a day or so to let the kids jump in the leaves and play in the leaves. And so they're doing so. And Ira, our youngest, who's two years old, he's out there. We live on a cul-de-sac, so it's, it's safe to have the leaves in the street. Don't judge me. Um, they're running across the street, jumping in the leaves. And Ira's trying to get a turn in, but he's got three older siblings who just keep going. And one of them's riding a bike through the leaves, and it's a whole scene. And he can't. So then you hear him, no, my turn, my turn. Then it's my leaves, my leaves. And then at one point, he's tired of everybody being in the way. Running. So he goes, my street. <laughs> and we can look at it and laugh that a two-year-old is, is proclaiming this authority on, on the neighborhood. This is my street. <laughs> and yet when it comes to our lives, we know that everything we have is a gift from above. And yet when it comes to our money, we think, no, this is my money. No, th this is my time. No, these are my weekends. It, we become very possessive. I, I'm the authority. It, if Jesus, if you want my time, if you want my money, if you want my weekends, if you want my financial security, if you, you want whatever it is, you need to answer to me. How is this going to work out well for me? How are you going to prove yourself to me? And we create this model where Jesus Christ exists, not as our authority, where he has bestowed great gifts on us and we are a steward to him, but that somehow we have accumulated all this on our own and Jesus is just lucky that we consider him at all with our time and our money and our resources and the decisions and the priorities that we make. And we laugh at a two-year-old proclaiming no my street and yet in our lives can often be shaped that way no this is my life these are my priorities don't you don't you mess with those don't you mess with my football time don't you mess with whatever it might be and we need to be challenged by what we see here in the religious leaders of the day that, that we so often can act the same way it's easy for us to see people outside of the church who, don't, who wouldn't trust in Christ to act that way. And yet, in our own lives, we can easily just compartmentalize Jesus away. That he answers to us if he asks for anything more than just this little piece of us. But Jesus 
whether we want to admit it or not, is the authority, is the king of kings in our lives. So now with this as the background and this as the theme, we enter the parable in chapter 12. And in the parable, we looked at parables earlier in Mark. It's been a while since he's told us one. The early part of Mark, his parables are somewhat veiled. They're meant to be a bit of that screen so that those who don't believe don't exactly understand what he is saying. If you heard Jim reading it, as we go through it now, you'll see this one's not quite so well veiled. He makes his point pretty pointedly and easily. And we'll see just how far people will go to escape the authority of Jesus' life. But we also see that Jesus will not surrender that authority. And in it we'll see the incredible love and patience that Jesus Christ has towards us. <clears throat> so he speaks to them in a parable. Chapter 12. He's just spoken, if you remember in chapter 11, he's compared Israel, specifically its religious leaders, to the barren fig tree. It's Old Testament imagery that often he compares his people. Israel, too, is that fig tree. The other image that we see often in the Old Testament, and we see it in the Gospels a lot, is comparing them to a vineyard. He compares his people to a vineyard. What Jesus is doing is he's taking a lot of the language, a lot of the wording from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, the song of the vineyard. It's worth going back and reading that. It's really beautiful. But he takes a lot of that imagery. I won't read that all, but just the first verse or two to, so you can see where he's coming from. In Isaiah 5, it says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes, and it goes on. It's very similar, what you see here at the beginning of Mark, is that God is, is planting this vineyard. He is its origin. He is the creator of it. It is his work. He has brought the vineyard into being. And he is its provider. He is watching over it. He's protector. He's caring for it. He's doing everything necessary that this vineyard would flourish. This vineyard that he has made. And so as we go through in the parable, you quickly see, okay, here's the characters and here's where they represent. God is the owner or the creator of the vineyard in this story. Israel, or God's people, they are the vineyard. The relig religious leaders, the Sanhedrin in this <clears throat> example, are the tenants. They're the ones who are to care for the vineyard while the owner is gone. The servants that the owner sends, that's the prophets. And the son is, yes, you guessed it, son of God. And so he takes a story that would be familiar to the people. It was not uncommon for them to have wealthy landowners. <clears throat> they would have a vineyard that was in the right uh, region, temperature and soil and everything that would be good for a vineyard but where they did not necessarily want to live themselves and so they would have this vineyard and they would hire tenant farmers to care for the vineyard that's the story 
So there is a vineyard. Farmer, tenant farmers are caring for it. And the owner says, okay, I'm going to send a servant to check out things, see how it's going. And when he comes, he is not well received. In fact, the, the farmers rough him up a little bit and send him on his way. So they send another farmer. This one gets beat pretty severely, leaves empty-handed. It's kind of funny, the, the Wycliffe version says that they break his face. <laughs> he got roughed up pretty good. Sends another, and some of them end up getting killed. And Jesus is making a pointed look at the religious leaders. You were meant to care for this field in my stead. You were meant to care for them. And when you failed, I sent servants. I sent my prophets coming. Thus saith the Lord. And you mistreated them and you ignored them. And ignoring the word of the prophet is ignoring the authority of God. You just think of some of the prophets. Elijah. Remember him? He came with a message to turn from wickedness. And he got driven into the wilderness. Had to go into hiding. Uriah the prophet. Not Uriah with David, but a different prophet. We read about Uriah as he came and he preached and the people ran him out of town. He had to flee to Egypt and they chased after him. They eventually caught him. They killed him and threw him into a common grave. Jeremiah 26 tells that story. Jeremiah himself, as he preached and proclaimed his message, they, they took him and they threw him into the cistern, into a well that he would just sit there and starve. He was delivered, but church history tells us that, at least it seems, that both Jeremiah and Isaiah were sawn asunder. That's how they were killed. When you read the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, you read about those who were cut in half for his sake. Most think that's referring to Jeremiah, to Isaiah. You even have Zechariah, the prophet, who we've been quoted often here in the book of Mark. Zechariah, that prophet who was stoned to death in the temple by the altar. 2 Chronicles 24, 21 tells us that story. Jeremiah, the prophet, has warned that God has spoken and the people did not listen. Matthew, it's interesting how Matthew gives these woes to the religious leaders. He goes, woe are you, woe are you, woe are you. In Matthew 23, a whole series of them. And he says this, and starting in verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. But thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. <laughs> he says, what do you, you religious leaders, as they build monuments and, and statues trying to honor the prophets, acting like if we'd lived in that day, we would have heard the word of God when the prophet said, thus saith the Lord. Meanwhile, God incarnate proclaiming before them and they have murder in their hearts. They, they do everything they can to cast off his authority. And he says, woe to you religious leaders acting like you honor the prophets. Look how you are acting towards Jesus Christ. Again, same application. The, the brazen rebellion of the religious leaders, it seems like surely you get it. 
You're scholars of the Old Testament. You should know the Messiah is coming. Why are you working so hard to escape the authority of Jesus Christ? But then I step back and first make application to myself. As a religious leader, as a pastor, am I working to point others to Jesus Christ or am I forgetting that he is the head and he is the authority? Am I working to gain authority myself, a position myself, influence myself? Or is it, no, Jesus Christ is the head, he was the servant of all, I am an under-shepherd to be a servant of all. And so I hear that for myself and I, I see my own shortcomings. But you church as well, it seems like they should have known, well, we live on the other side of the work of Jesus Christ. We, we can read about and hear and see and remember the gospel events on our behalf. We have a completed scripture, Old and New Testament, that testify to his work. We have 2,000 years of, of the church's testimony. And yet, we can stand and think, <clears throat> we hardly even acknowledge Christ in the decisions we make in the way we prioritize our life. It's just so easy for us to want to be our own authority and not submit to Christ. And this comes not as like you just decided this morning, okay, I'm going to surrender. You write the date in the back of your Bible. I surrendered on January 20th. No, it's every morning you have to wake up and remind yourself, I am not the Lord of my own life. I don't own every minute of this day to serve myself and my happiness and my promotion. Jesus Christ is my authority. They've got the point. Then you come to verse 6 in the parable, and he had still one other, a beloved son. My beloved son, going back to the baptism, this is my beloved son. The Lord pronounced that once more at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. My beloved son, leaving no doubt, this is the one with all authority that I'm sending to you. My beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, when you first read it, you can think either this landowner was not that smart or he just didn't care that much about his kid. Like everyone's getting killed. Are you going to really send your son and yet we quickly understand, as he has called his beloved son, as it connects back to the baptism of Jesus Christ, as it connects to Jesus Christ being set forward in his ministry, in his mission, all the way to the cross, that yes, the death of the son here is being once more predicted by Jesus Christ. It's the fourth time that he will have talked about his death. But you see that really it's a co-conspiracy, as it were, between the Father and the Son. The eternal plan of the Father to send the Son to lay down his life. Not to surrender authority, but to make a way for rebellious hearts like ours to joyfully come under his authority. 
and we're struck here in the authority of Jesus Christ that will not be surrendered. <clears throat> At the same time, the incredible patience and love of the Father. After sending servant after servant after servant, he sends his own son. The servants, they brought a message of thus saith the Lord, but here is Jesus Christ in the flesh. The one who will be the priest, the one who will be the sacrifice, the one who will lay down his life. You think of the patience and love that God the Father has for us. As we so easily disregard Jesus and, and, and try to ignore him or, or just not even, he doesn't even come to mind at times. And yet to that sort of rebellious heart that longs for its own authority, the same heart that we all have, we're all born with, the New Testament tells us. The world ha have a heart that's at enmity with God, that, that wants to serve itself, that has really murder in its heart towards Jesus and his authority. God would send down his son to lay down his life to change our hearts. We could willing and joyfully bow the knee to him. And look how it continues. Verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him. <clears throat> and threw him out of the vineyard. Now what will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. A word of warning to those religious leaders, a word of warning to those who would throw off the authority of Christ. Have you not read this scripture? He quotes from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He uses the imagery here of that cornerstone that, that will serve as sort of that central piece, bringing the whole building together. And the, the master builders, as they look at it, it's not quite shaped right. It's not whatever. They don't deem it quite right for them, so they cast it aside. But just because they reject it doesn't mean its job is done. It will become a stumbling block to some, but it will be the chief cornerstone. It will be what the church is fitted around. It will serve its purpose. And then you see this is exactly according to God's plan. In verse 11, this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in his eyes. This is not only foreseen, but is the redemptive plan of God. For his glory, for the glory of his bride, for you and for me. That he doesn't surrender his authority. What he does is he lays down his life and defeats the final enemy. Sin and death. Claiming victory and power over it. Becomes that chief cornerstone which all who will put their faith and trust in him will be fit together in Christ's church around that cornerstone. He will be, he is the authority whether you want to recognize it or not. We may try to push it out of our minds. Others may try to ignore it altogether. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. All authority has been given to him. And yet what marks it is a plan of patience and love for us to make a way for our salvation. 
verse 12 really pushes us forward in the past passion narrative. They were seeking to arrest him. But again, they're driven by fear. So they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went his way, <clears throat> went their way. Give him a couple more days before they can finally entrap him and snare him. I mean, the application's easy. We've made it five or six times already. I'm wearing you out with it. The authority of Jesus Christ. He is the authority. Will you acknowledge that? Prioritize your life around his word. Not take the stance of, well, this is mine. No, there, there's no square inch on this earth over which Jesus doesn't claim mine. And yet we come under that authority joyfully because he sent his son to lay down his life for us. Let's rejoice in his patience, his love toward us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this pointed story that reminds us of the authority of Jesus Christ. All of us, I would judge charitably, if asked point blank, is Jesus Christ your authority, we'd say yes. Lord, help us to order our lives in such a way that that's a reality. Might the Holy Spirit take the word and work it into our lives. Lord, that you've, if you haven't unmasked blind eyes, Lord, and, and removed us from darkness, I pray that you would, your grace would work in lives this morning. For those whose faith rests in Christ, Lord, might your spirit do its work through the word. Lord, we recognize it's a long journey of life. It won't be a decision today that we never has to be revisited. But day by day, really moment by moment, Lord, might we joyfully submit to your authority as the good shepherd who would give his life for us. Give you just a moment of thoughtfulness, and then we'll respond with the worship team. <clears throat>